Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We haven't talked about a shipwreck in a while, Holly. It's been a bit. And they're definitely a listener favorite. So today we are going to get into the Eastland disaster, which is one of the most requested episodes we have not gotten to yet. We've gotten notes about it from Elaine, Jennifer, Joanne, Susan, Jamie, Sarah, Julia, Eleanor, Jeff, Christian, and Courtney, and I am sure other people. Like that is a partial list of just the last couple of years. Uh, and since whenever we talk about a disaster, Afterward, we typically get an influx of requests for another very similar disaster. The General Slocum is already on the list, and the Sultana is already done. Uh, so the Eastland disaster was a huge tragedy. It was one of the deadliest disasters in Chicago history. Also one of the deadliest maritime disasters in American history overall. And a pretty consistent theme in our disaster episodes is a lack of safety regulations or maybe safety warnings that were not heated ahead of time and could have prevented the tragedy. And while there's definitely some of that in today's show, we're also going to talk about some safety regulations that, in this case, actually made it worse. Before we talk about what happened on the Eastland, we actually need to back up for just a second and talk about the Titanic and the changing safety standards that followed its sinking. Because although there were other issues at play as well, it was, in a cruel irony, an increased number of lifeboats that played a big part in the Eastland disaster. And what may be the most famous maritime disaster in history, the Titanic struck an iceberg during its maiden voyage on April 14th of 1912. It famously did not have nearly enough lifeboats for everyone on board, and that lack of lifeboats became the focus of people's grief and outrage in the aftermath of the disaster. It sparked a boats-for-all movement that demanded that ships have enough lifeboats or life rafts to accommodate every single person on board. This outrage, while completely understandable, was a little bit misplaced. A number of factors, including the speed and maneuverability of the ship itself, contributed to the Titanic disaster. But the lack of lifeboats was fairly far down on the list. While it is absolutely true that the Titanic did not have enough lifeboats for all of its passengers by a wide margin, it did have far more than were actually required at the time. And that requirement was based on the simultaneously pragmatic and pessimistic idea that in the event of a disaster massive enough to sink a ship, it was extremely unlikely that every passenger could successfully even get to a lifeboat. The recommended number of lifeboats when the Titanic set sail was part of a pretty grim equation. Some of the factors in this equation. How long would it take to determine that the ship was likely to sink and give the order to evacuate? ready the lifeboats and then deploy them. In such an event, how many passengers and crew were likely to already be dead before that order even came? How long would it take the ship to list far enough to one side that it would become impossible to deploy some or all of the lifeboats? How quickly could civilian passengers reasonably be expected to evacuate? And importantly, how many lifeboats did a ship have room to safely carry? In the case of the Titanic, the ship had enough lifeboat space to accommodate 1,178 people, which, as we said, was far fewer than the number of people aboard on its first voyage. 
but only 705 survived, leaving nearly 500 available lifeboat spaces unfilled. And this is because most of the lifeboats weren't anywhere close to full when they actually launched. A lot of reasons have been given for the partially full lifeboats, and they all really boil down to fear. Crew were afraid that completely full lifeboats would break the lowering mechanisms. Both passengers and crew were afraid that overcrowding would swamp the boats. And that fear was behind everything from barring the gates to the lower decks so that the people in steerage couldn't get out, to refusing to row back to the ship to pull survivors out of the water. Based on this passenger and crew behavior, the Titanic really would have needed half again as many lifeboats as passengers to actually rescue everyone on board, not just one lifeboat space per person. But the idea that more people would have survived if only there had been enough lifeboats was far more immediate and compelling than whether the ship had adequate rivets or a sophisticated enough steering and navigation system. Also, knowing that you would definitely have a space reserved for you on a lifeboat gave the illusion of safety should something terrible occur while traveling by water. It was like a century-old version of security theater. The post-Titanic call for more lifeboats wasn't just limited to passenger outcry, though. We are definitely not saying that lifeboats are bad, and there were professional people also recommending more lifeboats. A conference was convened in London in the fall of 1913 to outline international recommendations for safety in maritime vessels, in part to prevent another Titanic-like disaster. The result was the first international convention for the safety of life at sea, or SOLAS, which was signed in London on January 20th, 1914. Article 40 of the convention began, quote, At no moment of its voyage may a ship have on board a total number of persons greater than that for whom accommodation is provided in the lifeboats and the pontoon life rafts on board. Article 54 also designated a minimum total number of certified lifeboatmen, crew who were trained in all the operations related to launching and handling lifeboats. So this convention did leave room for individual nations to designate exemptions to this rule. But overall, it meant that one lifeboat space needed to be available per person and that the crew needed to be trained, just for example, not to launch the lifeboats when they were only half full. Because of World War I, many of the nations that had participated in all of this didn't ratify the treaty, and they put off implementing some or all of the recommendations that had come out of the conference. But these recommendations did influence other legislation. In the United States, this was the Siemens Act, signed by Woodrow Wilson on March 4th, 1915. The Siemens Act was largely the result of lobbying on behalf of the International Siemens Union of America, and many of its provisions were really about labor practices and workplace safety as they related to sailors themselves. They were things like collective bargaining rights and better living quarters on board the ships. But because of the ongoing furor about the lack of lifeboats on the Titanic, safety regulations for passengers, including lifeboat counts, were looped into this as well. So, as often happens, the thing that had become the big political hot button got looped into something that was originally related to something else. So nearly half of this act related to lifeboats in some way, although the final rule was for lifeboats to cover 75% of the passengers rather than all of them. 
The Siemens Act was also signed in between two other maritime disasters that demonstrate how lifeboats for all doesn't necessarily mean more lives saved. Both the Empress of Ireland, which sank on May 29, 1914, after colliding with a collier, and the Lusitania, which sank on May 7, 1915, after being torpedoed by a German submarine, had far more lifeboat spaces than people aboard. Both sank in under 20 minutes. 465 out of 1,477 people survived the Empress of Ireland sinking, and 761 of 1,959 people survived the Lusitania. So while today it's definitely standard on a lot of large ships to have a lifeboat space for everyone, these were examples of how that doesn't necessarily mean that you can get to want to get off the boat safely. Also, the Siemens Act encountered heavy resistance from ship operators who argued that its terms were expensive and in some cases unsafe and would put them out of business. And not long after it went into effect, the SS Eastland would actually prove that some of these criticisms were at least in part correct. And we will talk about exactly how after a quick sponsor break. The SS Eastland, which was nicknamed the Speed Queen of the Great Lakes and the Greyhound of the Lakes, was built in 1902. Its original purpose was to carry passengers from Chicago across the lake to Michigan and then return with produce to sell in Chicago markets. The 265-foot, 81-meter steamer was built by Jenks Shipbuilding Company, and it launched on May 6, 1903. It had an original capacity of 2,000 passengers, with sleeping accommodations for 500 of those. There's at least one article floating around that its original capacity was 300 passengers, but that seems to be an outlier and not accurate. Yeah, it it definitely had some retrofitting to carry more passengers, but I could not find confirmation that the original passenger count was that low. The Eastland's gangways were relatively low, and many of its interior doors were not watertight, which meant that it had the potential to take on water if it listed very far to one side, and those gangways wound up dipping under the water's surface. Exactly how far it could list without capsizing, which is a concept known as its metacenter, wasn't ever measured before it was put into passenger service. But in spite of these potential trouble spots, at first, the Eastland didn't seem to have any major problems with stability. Like all Great Lakes ships, though, the Eastland had a much shallower draft than an ocean liner would. It was constructed with a series of ballast tanks, which could be emptied or filled based on how deeply in the water the ship needed to ride, or to compensate for an unbalanced load. And these tanks weren't metered, though, so it was up to the skill and experience of the crew to estimate how full they were versus how full they needed to be. Although it didn't originally seem to have problems with stability, at least not major ones, the Eastland also wasn't quite fast enough to reasonably do what its owners wanted it to do, which was to make two round trips a day. So soon it underwent modifications to increase its passenger capacity, try to make it a little faster, to make it more profitable. It began to have problems almost immediately after the retrofitting. On July 17th of 1904, it nearly capsized. It went into a serious list on August 5th of 1906. By the time it was sold to St. Joseph Chicago Steamship Company in 1914, it had a reputation for being less than stable. And that was before the Siemens Act and its lifeboat regulations. In testimony after the disaster, one of the 
people in the company who had bought it was like, yeah, I didn't actually know much about the ship, but we did get it for really cheap. During the negotiation of the Siemens Act, Detroit and Cleveland Navigation Company General Manager A.A. Schatz had pointed out that all these additional lifeboats and rafts were going to add a lot of weight, specifically a lot of weight to the upper decks of a ship. Like a lifeboat is not going to do anybody any good if it's stored way down in the hold where you can't get to it. When it came to Great Lakes vessels, which already tended to be more top-heavy and shallower in the draft than an ocean liner, they would, quote, turn turtle if you added that much weight to their upper decks. He and others had advocated for exceptions or adjusted guidelines for the Great Lakes passenger ships, but this advice didn't make it into the final bill. On July 2nd, 1915, the Eastland got its new supply of lifeboats and equipment to bring it up to the standards outlined in the Siemens Act. Its number of lifeboats increased from 6 to 11. It also had 37 life rafts and enough life jackets to fit a sold-out passenger load plus all of its crew. That was about 2,570 people. All of this additional gear weighed somewhere between 14 and 15 tons, and it was almost all stored in the upper decks, making an already unbalanced ship even more top-heavy. On July 24th, 1915, the Eastland was to make its first fully loaded crossing of Lake Michigan after receiving all this additional equipment. It had not been tested to see how it might maneuver under all of this additional weight, and the safety inspections it had received over the years had all taken place while the ship was underway, not while it was docked. That Saturday morning, the Eastland was one of five ships chartered by Western Electric to carry its employees 38 miles across Lake Michigan for a day-long picnic at Washington Park in Michigan City, Indiana. This picnic had become an annual and much-anticipated tradition among the company's factory workers. These employees normally worked six-day weeks, so this was an extra day off, and for the many who were young and unmarried, it was a good opportunity to socialize and to meet other eligible people. The 1915 picnic was to be the fifth one, and about 7,000 people had bought tickets for the passage across the lake. Encouraged to arrive early, passengers began arriving at the dock at Clark Street Bridge on the Chicago River at about 6.30 in the morning. Federal inspectors kept count of how many boarded the Eastland, which was the first of the five ships scheduled to depart. Because it was raining, many of the passengers, especially women and children, went below decks to stay out of the wet. The Eastland was oriented so that its starboard, or right side, was closest to the wharf where people were boarding. About 10 minutes into loading passengers, the Eastland began to list to the starboard, probably because of the added weight of the people on that side of the upper deck. The crew began adding water to the ballast tanks to try to right the ship, and it did briefly become level again, but soon it started to tip in the other direction, toward port. People continued to board as the crew continued to adjust the water in the ballast tanks to try to steady the ship. At 7.10 in the morning, the ship reached its capacity of 2,500 passengers, and the crew began trying to more evenly disperse the crowd. With the list to port becoming even more pronounced, the crew opened the valves to two starboard ballast tanks, although they didn't begin filling for several minutes. At 7.20, with the ship momentarily righted, the crew brought in the gangway and started making preparations to depart. They continued trying to distribute the passenger load more evenly, but at this point, the upper decks were soaked with rain and the ship was swaying back and forth, so this proved to be really difficult. The deck was too slick to really walk on well, and a lot of people either didn't want to move or they couldn't. 
At 7.27, the Eastland began to list dramatically. The portside gangways dipped below the surface, causing the ship to take on water. And the crew began trying to scramble out of the engine room as it started to submerge. At 7.28, the ship listed a terrifying 45 degrees. Dishes, furniture, a piano, and a refrigerator in the ship all started to slide toward port, in some cases crushing passengers or trapping them against walls. Passengers and crew who had made it to the ship's upper decks started leaping onto the wharf. By 7.30, the Eastland was completely on its side next to the dock in about 20 feet, that's approximately six meters, of water. This capsize had happened so quickly that none of the newly added lifeboats or life jackets had been deployed. We're going to talk more about the disaster and the response to it after we first pause for a little sponsor break. The area around the Eastland was extremely busy on the day it capsized, with at least two other ships that were bound for the Western Electric picnic in the process of boarding their passengers. So a huge number of people were already on hand to try to help with the rescue. This was both a help and a hindrance, since the wharf quickly became too crowded for people to effectively maneuver. Some of those who managed to scramble up onto the now horizontal starboard side of the ship were able to jump to the wharf to safety. Captain John O'Meara was at the helm of the tug Kenosha, which had been scheduled to tow the Eastland down the Chicago River to Lake Michigan. After it capsized, he ordered the tug to be secured to the wharf to be used as a bridge to the Eastland. Many of those on the upper deck had not been able to climb to safety, though. The ship tipped quickly enough that a lot of them were thrown into the water. Bystanders began throwing anything that might float into the water to try to give survivors something to cling to. A lot of people at that time just didn't know how to swim. So people from the dock started throwing boards and oars and crates and other things that were mostly made of wood. Some of this debris, though, hit the very people they were trying to help, knocking them unconscious and causing them to drown. Tugs and other small boats on the scene also became part of this rescue. Bridge tender Lawrence Frank Northrup, witnessing the capsize, got in a lifeboat and rowed to the scene where he was able to pull 23 people to safety. People were still alive inside the half-submerged Eastland at this point, and some of them were badly injured. Welders cut through the exposed hull of the ship so that they could pull out as many people as possible. And then from there, the same holes were used to accommodate divers to try to pull bodies out from the submerged parts of the ship. Multiple accounts of the day reference horrible, deafening screaming, both as the boat capsized and afterward. Helen Reppa, a Western Electric nurse, was on her way to the dock when the Eastland capsized, and she became a huge part of the rescue effort, sending people to nearby businesses for blankets and soup, flagging down passing cars to carry people who were either uninjured or only had scrapes and bruises so they could get home. There weren't enough available ambulances, so American Express loaned its trucks for the purpose. Later on, there would not be enough hearses to accommodate all the funerals, so Marshall Field and Company, better known as Marshall Fields, donated the use of its trucks for the purpose. By 8 a.m., only half an hour after the ship capsized, nearly all of the survivors had been rescued. But the efforts to bring up the bodies of those who were killed took hours, especially from the submerged portside cabins. At least 844 people died. It's the official count. But as we're going to talk about in a bit, some of that is a little hard to pin down. Most of them were factory workers. 
22 entire families were killed. 75% of the victims were under the age of 25. Because there were five boats chartered for this picnic, there was no passenger manifest and no easy way to determine exactly who had been on board. The 2nd Regiment Armory was used as a temporary morgue with bodies laid out in rows of 85. Families were admitted to try to find their loved ones at around midnight on the 25th. Unfortunately, there were also looky-loos and thieves who came along as well with some of the victims' personal belongings stolen from the bodies. Nearly 700 funerals took place on July 28, 1915. By July 29th, all but one of the bodies had been claimed. The last one left was a little boy who had been nicknamed Little Feller. He was eventually sent to a funeral home where two children identified him as their friend, Willie Novotny. His body hadn't been claimed because his parents and his sister had also been killed. His grandmother eventually made the identification based on his pants, which were part of the new suit that he had worn to the picnic. When he and the rest of his family were buried on July 31st, more than 5,000 people attended the funeral. This whole incident was devastating on so many levels, with hundreds of Western Electric employees losing coworkers and neighborhoods where those employees lived struck with a huge loss of life. Many of those who were killed were immigrants from Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and Poland, which meant that the neighborhoods where these families were clustered were hit particularly hard. In addition to providing aid at the scene, the American Red Cross, churches, and civic organizations helped families to make funeral arrangements. About 100 nurses from the Chicago Department of Health visited more than 500 families afterward to look for and treat signs of health problems from having been submerged in the Chicago River, which was both very dirty and very cold. Immediately after the incident, Eastland Captain Harry Peterson, Chief Engineer Joseph Erickson, and other members of the crew were taken into custody, in part to protect them from people who were distraught or outraged in the wake of the disaster. Because the incident happened on a navigable waterway at a city wharf, different aspects of it fell under federal, state, city, and county jurisdictions. There were seven separate inquiries and 24 years of litigation, including federal proceedings that were overseen by Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who would later become famous as the first commissioner of baseball after the Black Sox scandal. Taking most of the blame at the time was Chief Engineer Erickson, because he would have been the person giving the orders about how to handle the ballast tanks. He was represented by Clarence Darrow, who has come up on the show a lot lately, But Erickson died of heart disease in 1919, before the investigations and legal proceedings concluded. Indictments for manslaughter were handed down for several of the officers in the company that owned the ship, as well as the captain and chief engineer. Charges of fraud were brought against government inspectors as well, which were eventually changed to a charge of conspiracy to operate an unsafe ship. The manslaughter charges were ultimately dropped. In February of 1916, Judge Clarence Sessions of the District Court of Grand Rapids, Michigan, delivered a verdict of not guilty in the conspiracy charge because there was no probable cause. A civil suit and the wrongful deaths of the Eastland's passengers dragged on until 1933. Its terms limited the payout to the value of the Eastland's salvage sale, which was $50,000 but deducted from that total was the $35,000 it cost to raise the wrecked Eastland from the river. So virtually no compensation was ever paid to any of the victims' families. 
Even though Erickson's management of the ballast tanks became a scapegoat of the disaster, the addition of the lifeboats was already noted as a problem in 1915. In an article called Problems Growing Out of the Titanic Disaster, Thomas I. Parkinson wrote, quote, The Eastland turned turtle at her dock in Chicago. It has even been suggested that her lifeboat equipment tended to make the boat top-heavy. Parkinson then went on to criticize the overall trend of basing new safety regulations on the latest tragedy rather than taking a holistic approach, saying, quote, Following the burning of the Slocum, there was agitation for more careful inspection and a better supply of lifebelts. Following the Titanic, the need of better lifeboat equipment was emphasized. And now, following the Eastland, it is reported that the Department of Commerce has framed a bill to give the federal government control of the construction of vessels of more than 100 tons. This activity to remedy specific defects immediately after each accident tends to prove, as in the law of negligence, that the failure to act prior to accident involves some lack of care. The gradual patching of our laws may ultimately make them more satisfactory than they are now, but we cannot hope to avoid disasters on the water until our rules and regulations and the laws on which they are based are revised to meet modern developments in the building and operation of ships after careful study of the whole problem in all its many ramifications. The Eastland was raised from the riverbed on August 14, 1915, and sold to the U.S. Navy on November 21st of 1917. It was re-outfitted and operated as the USS Wilmette until 1945. It was sold for scrap on October 31st, 1946. As a total side note, the armory that was the temporary morgue after the disaster used to be home to Oprah Winfrey's Harpo Studios, uh, it has since been torn down to make room for McDonald's new headquarters, with huh. many reports that it was quite haunted because of having been home to all of those bodies. That was my next question. Uh, yeah. Was, does it have a, a haunting legacy story? Yeah. So this is, we, we very frequently talk about disasters that they happened and then afterward new legislation was passed to prevent that same disaster from happening again. I think this is the only time that we've told a story where a disaster had happened and new laws were passed and then those laws turned out to have unintended negative consequences. Yeah. Yeah, like when we talk about theater fires, like the the need for clear egress for everyone has not caused, to the best of my knowledge, similar issues. Uh, other safety regulations that have arisen from disasters. I can't think of a one that's had sort of this impact that did not go the way that they were hoping. It is very interesting to me that in 1915, at least one person was already saying, we need to look at this whole problem and figure out the best way to approach it rather than having this piecemeal response to each disaster. Yeah. Which I think, It's in some industries that is a pattern that still exists today. I'm thinking about every time I go to the airport. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And there, like, there are a series of steps that you have to take up to board an airplane that are based on either a prior incident or a prior threat rather than a systemic review of the whole security picture to make a recommendation. Yeah. Do you have listener mail that's hopefully a hair more chipper? a little more chipper. Uh, It is also pretty short because I felt like this episode was uh, a little 
longer and weightier than is often the case. Uh, this is from Curtis, who also sent lots of topic suggestions and also a note that Lake Erie is still quite dirty <laughs> in spite of years of cleanup, which is definitely true. And Curtis says, I am from one of the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio, and regularly drive over and hang out by the river. It's been a large part of my whole life, and my family has been here for generations on my mom's side. So naturally, I was excited to listen to your episode, and let me tell you, it was an emotional experience for me. I never realized that the fire was partially or indirectly the reason for our poor image. The sense of shame has always weighed on me, and gaining a handle on how it came about actually brought me to tears. I really appreciated your treatment of it. You were very kind. Cleveland is actually a really lovely place in some areas, although we do, of course, as you said, have our problems. So thank you. I just want to say thanks, Curtis. Yeah. Uh, I... Often when we do an episode that is in some way critical of a place that we don't live, I, I, I am hopeful that people who live there are not going to be personally hurt by what we have said. So it was very nice to hear from someone local that that was not the case. So thank you so much. Curtis, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History, Twitter at History, Tumblr at History, Pinterest, Instagram, all those things, History. You can come to our website, which is at History.com, and you will find the archive of every single episode we have ever done. If you are having problems replaying our podcasts we have a troubleshooting document there now with lots of tips that help in almost all cases show notes for episodes holly and i have done lots of cool stuff you can also come to our parent company's website which is mistedhistory.com you'll find lots of stuff about other interesting things including lots of other shipwrecks so you can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistedhistory.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 